Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Tri-State College Basketball Report. My name is Brian Dinavellis. We saw history made at the Final Four, but instead of Gonzaga becoming the first undefeated national champion since Indiana in 1976, it was Baylor winning its first national championship in their program history. And here to break down Baylor's dominating performance and put this college basketball season into perspective is the man who did the color commentary on radio for Westwood One, someone who knows a thing or two about winning championships in the NBA with the Spurs and in college at Seton Hall, P.J. Carlissimo. P.J., thanks for coming on. Brian, great to be with you. P.J., first of all, you were there courtside. How dominant was Baylor's performance against Gonzaga? And and did you see it coming? No, I, I, I didn't. I mean, I thought maybe one chance in 10. I was a little concerned with uh, – I've always been bothered, to be honest. I mean, I, as much as I love the NCAA tournament – I've always been bothered by the one-day turnaround. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you have – you in a normal year, uh, you have four days or five days to get ready for that Thursday or Friday game, and then you have one day to get ready for the Saturday or Sunday, and that's usually a tougher game. I mean, you advance. Normally, you run into a tougher opponent in the next round. Of all games for it to happen, you're talking – probably one of the most anticipated games we've had in a long time in the NCAA. I mean, this, this game really went back to last year. Both of these teams would have been number one seeds had we had an NCAA tournament last year. They started 1-2, and they were pretty much 1-2. Gonzaga was number one the entire year. Right. Baylor was number two for most of the year. So you, you have this game, and, and it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, Gonzaga has a late game on uh, Saturday, and they go till almost midnight before they leave the before the game's over. Then you got all your interviews and stuff like that. It's like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning before you get to bed. Um, and they had an overtime game against a, a, a great UCLA team playing probably as well as anybody in the tournament. Uh, and they got to turn around and play Baylor, who was just awesome in their semifinal and and, and blew Houston out. It was still a difficult game, but. Again, you get ready to play the national championship, you would think both coaches' remarks, Scott Drew and Mark Few, both said they wish they had, A, a couple more days to yeah, savor yeah. where they were and they were getting ready to play for a national championship, and B, they'd like to be a little more prepared as opposed to worrying about, hey, we can't really practice hard. These guys are exhausted. Sunday, they kind of put them on the floor, walk through some stuff, and get ready to play on Monday, but but that's always been a, a, a little bit of a complaint of mine. I, I don't think I don't think they're ever going to change it. Right. A lot of people don't don't think about it. Those, you know. Hopefully, we get back to normal next year. But the you know the run up to the Saturday uh, Final Four, uh, they had a couple days to get ready for those the, the UCLA and Houston games respectively. And then all of a sudden, here's the biggest game of the year, biggest game either coach has ever been involved in, and. Uh, it's kind of a rush job, but that, you know, that's the way it is. Um, the way Baylor played that night, I don't think it mattered if they had a, a month to prepare, to be honest <laughs> with you. If, if Baylor plays as well as they played, um, it's going to be very difficult for um, Gonzaga to win that night, particularly when Gonzaga did not play, uh, you know, one of their better games. Now, Baylor had an awful lot to do with that. I mean, the way they defended, they took them out of their offense. They turned them over. Uh, they made their threes. 
Gonzaga did not make their threes, and they just outworked them all night on the offensive boards, uh, Baylor's offensive boards. So it was a it was really a difficult night for Mark Few and his team. Um, it was a great night for Scott Drew and Baylor, and they're a very, very deserving national champion. No doubt, Coach, and, and you've always preached defense. Your Seton Hall teams played tremendous defense, so how much do you appreciate what Baylor did defensively? Now, listen, I know the numbers say Gonzaga shot 50%, which is remarkable, but the way they turned them over, the way they pressed them, the way they held the highest-scoring team in the country to just 70 points, uh, you have to appreciate you know, what they did and, and turning them over and, and how they held them in check. Yeah, it, it was really impressive. I'm sure it was really depressing if you're a, a Gonzaga fan sure. or a, even if you're a Gonzaga coach sitting on that bench. They just took them out of their offense. Most of the points that uh, Gonzaga scored was, you know, either some in transition. Um, they didn't shoot the three very well, which they normally do. They had trouble penetrating. When they did penetrate, there was really good help there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they shot. I don't know what it was. I think it was still 55%. So, again, um, you, you look at that standpoint from Gonzaga, but they didn't shoot free throws well. They didn't shoot three-pointers well. And they turned the ball over too much. So, it was very atypical night for Gonzaga. And as you mentioned, uh, almost 20 points plus below what they averaged all year. And they just had won all year in such dominant fashion. Uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, the difference in the schedules. Yeah, but they also played like, you know, out of their league. You can't play a more aggressive, right. you know, non-league scheduling in Zaga. They were supposed to play Baylor, ironically, in Indianapolis on December the 5th. But, I mean, they played Kansas. They played Virginia, who won the ACC. They played Iowa, who I think was third in, in the Big Ten. I mean, it, they'll play any, but, you know, their mm -hmm. their motto is anybody, any place, any, any time. Uh, and Mark Few realizes they need to do that. But um, it was uh, it was just an incredible performance. Uh, and, you know, Baylor, Baylor only lost two games all year. They were after they came out of a COVID pause, um, not taking any. Kansas beat them legit uh, in Allen Fieldhouse a night when uh, – Baylor just didn't shoot the ball well, and they lost to uh, Oklahoma State. I think it was the semis of the uh, Big 12 tournament. Yes. So they got beat twice. They got beat by two teams shooting the ball extremely well and playing uh, extremely well. But, um, you know, it's hard to argue against Baylor being the better team the way they played that night. Yeah, and, and being an NBA guy, Coach, you get the feeling that if they played a seven-game series, Baylor might win in five. Well, that, I don't know if they'd win in five, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I, yeah. You know, I, I certainly I couldn't say I believe Gonzaga would win. I think they'd get a couple games. I think it'd be okay. at least a six-game series. And, you know, that's what the NCAA is all about. I mean, it, you know, Gonzaga could have played one of their best games all year. And if it had Baylor been a little subpar, it would have been a different outcome. But, I mean, right from the beginning – the very first possession, they got two offensive rebounds and scored. They made threes early. They started out on fire, you know, as opposed to shaking your head because shots didn't go down. Everything went down for them early. So they were just playing downhill right from the beginning. And you can't go back in time. There was a really tough call against Suggs, uh, one of the first three or four possessions. Right. Uh, they, uh, it was an offensive foul. Uh, block charge call that I thought was the incorrect call, but then he gets a legit call, maybe two or three possessions later, and they're down 9-0 or 11-2, whatever it was, and Suggs gets his second foul, and of course, Mark Few's got to take him out, and 
I, you know, I turned to Kevin Kugler and Jimmy Jackson. I said, I got news for you. Suggs two fouls are a bigger problem than the score. They can come back from this score, but I, I don't know if they can do it without Suggs. And Fuey kept him out for a while and then just realized the game was getting away from him, put him back in. And, you know, Jalen Suggs was easily the best Gonzaga player that night. But again, you know, all those circumstances piled on top of Gonzaga, but nothing was was a, a bigger negative than how well Baylor played. No question. No question, Coach. When you are at the Final Four, and I don't know how many you've been to as a coach, as a fan, even when you weren't, even when you were, yeah, exactly. So how surreal was it being there, you know, in an arena like that during a pandemic and the buzz of the crowd, not only not being there in the arena, but just in the whole city of Indianapolis. What was it like? It's been that kind of year. I do uh, I do a number of uh, NBA games, and obviously for Westwood, I did a ton of college games this year. Uh, it's just been very, very different. Uh, I mean, when you, when you don't have, uh, you know, the band, you name it, the band, cheerleaders, fans, Every one of those things, that, that that's what makes college basketball what it is. The biggest difference in a normal year when I do NBA and I do college, I mean, it's just, it, it's invigorating to come to a college game and hear the band and see the cheerleaders and, you know, see the fanaticism. You just see things you don't see in an NBA game. And I love the, I love both of the games, but I mean, it's night and day. That tournament was night and day. I, I give Danny Gavitt and the NCAA you know, tremendous credit for having a national championship this year. And you, you got to wonder, was it different? Yeah, it was very different. But who ended up playing for the national championship, the two best teams in right. the country? So it, it didn't affect them. That's there right. were a lot of upsets. There always are in the NCAA. But, you know, anybody that said that we got a different result or, you know, it really wasn't a champ, they're crazy. The two best teams all year, ended up playing for the national championship. And even though it was an environment that I don't think any of us cared for, um, one of the best things about the final four every year is you're playing in front of the, you know, the NABC, the national association of basketball coaches, uh, their convention is always at the final four. So you usually are playing in front of three or 4,000 coaches, not just college coaches, but junior college coaches, NAI division two, II, division three, there are more coaches sitting there watching those games than any other game you ever play. I mean, I, I always, I mean, I remember going back the first final four. I remember attending was late seventies. I, 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 it's funny because they had the flags up uh, in Lucas oil. 1980 was the final four at market square arena. I mean, all the final fours I ever attended that, you know, that was one of the things that you enjoyed sitting there watching the national, the semifinals in a national championship game and to have a game and there probably weren't 10 coaches in the arena other than <laughs> the coaches yeah. for Baylor and, and Gonzaga. So um, it, it was diff it was difficult. It was different, but uh, no accident. Uh, the two teams that got to the finals. Right. It's rare that we, that we get the two best teams in college basketball playing in the national championship. And in a normal year, like you said, you're in a hotel lobby and it's a who's who of of college coaches. I mean, you're you're bumping into one after another. It's it's uh no, let's it's, hope it comes I back. Mean, let's it's hope it's there next year. It's the time you get to see people you haven't seen the whole year. And uh it's also the time that coaches from different sections of the country get to see these teams from other sections and say, Well, let's see, you know, was the Big Ten really the best conference? Was the Big Twelve the best conference? How good was the Pac twelve? And you get a chance to sit there and, and judge for yourself. 
as opposed to watching on TV or listening to people like you and I to try and tell them who, what's going on. Right. Well, let's hope next year is is back to what will be normal. Exactly. So, Coach, uh, I do want to talk to you about a special time in, in our lives. 30 years ago, can you believe your first Big East Championship, 1991, is... Uh, 30 years passed, and, and so many things that I remember there as a student and a student broadcaster, that team was a team that was coming off of, uh, you know, a down year, but still two years removed from the national yep. championship game. It was young, but you also had a couple of veterans. What, first of all, what, what made that team so special and allowed them to go on that magical run? Well, the players is, is what always makes it special. We we had a we had a roster, and, and you described it. We had so many seniors on the '89 team. The you know the '88 team was the first team that ever got to the NCAA tournament, and and we lost Mark Bryant. Um, we lost some other guys who were you know key contributors. James some Major too. Some some people that really made a big difference. But um, we knew the 89 team was going to be a good team. It was a good team to begin with. And then when you added Andrew Gaze to the team, it became a, a great team. Um, we came up short, but we lost a ton. And I, I was still encouraged that the 89-90 team, I don't know what we won, 12, 13 games. But, I mean, we, you know, we won in the ACC Big East. Um, we were competitive uh, in the Big East Conference. And we were very, very young. We still had Franz Volsey. We still had Gordon Winchester, Anthony Avent. Uh, we, you know, we had some guys who had uh, been on the the '89 team. Uh, so we thought that team had a really good chance to to be good. We added some players, like Ollie Taylor, and and a lot of people didn't realize. You know, when they talk about our our '89 team, um, giving them credit for all they accomplished, they didn't win the Big East. They didn't win, they didn't win the regular season. They didn't win the Big East tournament. We had never done either and that was one of the things that was so special about the 91 team that we were finally able to win a big east championship it turned out that it was the tournament championship uh but it was the first one we had ever won and it was the first time on selection sunday there was no mystery we knew uh, i think we even watched it from the garden if i remember i don't remember whether we were still playing the sunday afternoon cbs game or not but there were times when we watched that selection show in New York before we even went back home. And the first two times we watched it upstairs in the locker room at, at Walsh Auditorium. Uh, you know, and you always wonder, I mean, as confident as you are about the year you had, you, you never know until you see your name up there. So it was different. Uh, it was a great achievement. It kind of got lost in the shuffle because I, I, when I talk about the, the, you know, everybody says the three best weeks in college basketball. I always say the four best because I include the tournament, mm -hmm. the Big East tournament for us um, was such a treat. Uh, it, it was such a big event. Um, even then in Madison square garden as it, as it still is. And I, I thought it was fantastic preparation for the NCAA. There are a lot of coaches who disagree with that, who, you know, feel like, going through a brutal like the ACC coaches, some of them will say, you know, it doesn't bother them when they get knocked off in the first or second round. They'd rather be rested and get ready for the NCAA. And particularly the tournaments that end on Sunday, as we did in those days, you can get caught in a Sunday, Thursday. You can play on Sunday afternoon mm -hmm. and then have to turn around and play Thursday, your first game in the NCAA with a trip involved. And we always got sent west. So it was a question of, you know, We'd you know find out who we were going. We try and start watching tapes. We'd often leave on Monday, but Tuesday at the latest, and to get to wherever we were going to go. So um, it kind of got overshadowed because the team 
was playing so well and we ended up getting to the elite eight we ended up getting back to seattle ironically right. where i'm talking to you from we've settled in seattle but you know in 89 um we lost to michigan in in the kingdom in seattle in 91 we lost to an undefeated uh unlv team that was the defending national champs and hadn't lost that year uh and we got beat uh there so it was such a good year that team had that you know normally when they talk about it they go well the elite 18 team that got to the elite eight and lost a lot you know lost to unlv and they kind of forget it was our first um big east tournament championship we only had we only won four and that was the first one but we, we ended up winning two tournaments uh and two regular season championships and that team was really special for a lot of reasons but probably winning the big east tournament was was the most significant thing they accomplished and those first two games the two buzzer beaters by ali taylor which which one was better the one against pittsburgh or the one against villanova I, I got to say Villanova. I don't know that it was better, but the, what made it better was it got us to the championship game. Okay. It meant we were going to be playing Georgetown. I don't remember whether we had the first semi or the second semi that day, but I do remember that you got to say the one that, that got you further along was bigger. I mean, Ollie Taylor was, I, I think he got it, the most outstanding player in the he tournament. Did. He certainly he deserved it. But I mean, we, you know, we had two wars uh, to, to get there, to get to the last shot. And, you know, Ollie came up as big as you can come up. And we didn't cruise by any stretch against Georgetown, but it didn't take a last shot of the game to beat Georgetown <laughs> in the championship. So uh, I, I have to say I, I love both of them, but, but I got to give him more props for the Villanova one. So last question, Coach, you did mention UNLV. And obviously the comparisons came up between UNLV and Gonzaga. Uh, both teams loaded with pros. You know, you played against that UNLV team that year. Played them well for a half. I think it was a three-point game at the half. We were in good shape at the yeah. half. We, we didn't end the half well, uh, which, which ironically, Gonzaga did. Gonzaga did a great job getting it back to 10 points. I actually thought going into the locker room, they had a chance to come out and, and make a run. They made, made, made one good run, but they didn't get back in it as much as I thought they could. Um, but... Yeah, the, the UNLV game, believe it or not, we had played them uh, back in 89. We played them in the West Regional in Denver, either the round of 16 or the round of eight. Um, and we actually thought we had a chance. We did have a chance. We thought we were good enough to beat them. I think had we beaten them in Seattle, the Final Four was in Indianapolis, uh, coincidentally. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't recall, where, but you would have played Duke. I know that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, where, that's where Duke beat them. And I remember coming back to Felix Roman, who you know is one yes. of our managers. I remember coming back to my hotel room. I think I went out to dinner with my parents and came back and Felix had set up the video to watch the game again. But Mike K had called. They hadn't won yet. Uh, they, they won on Sunday, uh, if I remember correctly. And Mike K called, who was a, a, a good friend, just to find out what, what my impressions were and whether they were beatable or not. And if you remember the year before that, we're right. running all these years together. They had just, UNLV had just demolished them in Denver in the national championship game, I think. So, you know, there was a good chance. He knew then if they had won the next day, they were going to they were gonna get another chance at, at UNLV. And he was wondering, you know, were they beatable? How good were they? And um, I, they were great. There's no question about that. It was an undefeated team. Uh, you know, I got to say the team the year before was better because the team the year before won the national championship. But you're splitting hairs. There were two pretty good teams, yeah. three pretty good teams, if you want to put the one we played in in 89. 
in Denver in that mix also. So talk was on a run. They were excellent. A lot of the players were the same players. Uh, but it was, a, it was a great team, and it was a tough way for us to end our season. Those guys, um, you know, came close to getting us back to another Final Four two years later, which would have been a, an incredible achievement. We had won, I think we won our last game in a regular season. We won three in the Big East tournament, and then we won um, three more. You beat, you beat an we excellent Arizona team. Win streak when we got beat. Yeah. Right. When we beat Arizona in a round of 16, it was probably – seven wins in a row. So we were feeling pretty good about our chances at that point. Well, a lot of great memories, Coach, and, and so many things to cherish, not only at Seton Hall, but, uh, you know, seeing you do well as a broadcaster now. So I just want to thank you for your time, and, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes to come on the Tri-State College Basketball Report, PJ. Thank you uh, very Brian, much. Brian, always good to be with you, and it's it's always good to talk about uh, Seton Hall teams. That that 91 team was special for a lot of reasons. I know one of you, Daryl Christ, was on that team. I think Renee was on the, the 89 team. So you were you were connected uh, very much so to, to some of our really uh, elite teams at Seton Hall. So appreciate it. Yeah, no question, Coach. And Renee is still a very dear friend of mine to this day, along with another roommate and former walk-on, Mike Murphy. Coach, great talking to you. Thank you. All right, Brian. Thank you. All right. The great PJ Carlissimo, Seton Hall royalty. He's like E.F. Hutton. When PJ talks, people listen. I'd like to talk now about the transfer portal. All right? More than 1,200 Division I men's basketball players are actively in the portal. The NCAA expected to announce April 15th. Anyone transferring this year will be eligible immediately. They can play right away. But this is going to be the caveat moving forward. Players will only be allowed to transfer once over their four years, okay? There's no more transferring to multiple schools, no more waivers, throughout the waivers, the hardship. Players can go to a school. If they don't like it or something's not right, they can transfer. They don't have to sit out, but you now have to remain at that school. So, Torian Thompson... He would not have been able to transfer from Syracuse to Seton Hall and then to Detroit. He would have had to remain at Seton Hall. I love it. I actually was concerned about the rule because why are you allowing players to transfer and be eligible immediately? It's going to be like the wild, wild west. And people may argue, well, coaches can leave and they can coach right away. I get that. But now you're saying you need to remain there. This will open up doors, but also people will think twice before transferring because once you transfer, you won't be able to do it again. But Seton Hall has taken full advantage of this over the last two weeks. In late March, Seton Hall was in a position where fans were saying, looks like we're going to rebuild. Looks like we'll have to hand the car keys over to freshmen and let the freshmen learn Right away, just throw them into the deep end. Well, now, not so fast. Enter Jamer Harris from American. Enter Kaderi Richmond from Syracuse. And let's not forget Jameer's younger brother is part of the equation too, Jaquan. He'll be at Seton Hall the following year. So you have Harris, you have Richmond, and a third transfer, power forward Alexis Yetna from South Florida. So let's break down what Seton Hall is getting. First of all, the guards. 
Harris and Richmond. Immediate upgrades. All right. I love the heart and hustle that Takal Molson showed. I love what Shavar Reynolds was all about. A rags to riches story. One of the great walk-ons in NCAA history, certain in Seton Hall history. And you cannot discount what Shavar Reynolds meant and his heart, his desire, getting the most out of his talent. All of the the game-winning plays that he made. I mean, you'll never forget that game-winning three against St. John's. But those players do not have the playmaking ability of Harris and Richmond, period. Harris, he can shoot, he can score. This kid led the nation in three-pointers per game, 3.9 per game. He almost hit four three-pointers every game, shot 44% from three, which anything over 40% is excellent in this day and age. That's where you want to be. And he's also a horse, by the way. This kid played 38.9 minutes per game. He led the nation in minutes played per game. Now, some might say, well, he's got a lot of tread in those tires. I'm going to say, no, this guy's like the Energizer Bunny. Put him out there. All right? I can guarantee you this. He won't be playing 39 minutes a game in Kevin Willard's offense. I mean, maybe there's a game that he does that, but it's not going to be consistently over the season. Richmond is taller, six foot five, like a Brian Caver, athletic, slasher, defensive minded. This is a guy who you can put the ball in his hand in the final seconds, spread the floor, and say, go make a play. This is what Seton Hall was lacking this past season. Who was going to break down the defense? You have one timeout left. You're down one. You just get a rebound. You're bringing the ball up the floor with 12 seconds to go. I'm not calling timeout. Let Richmond go make a play. Either he's going to get to the rim, he's going to beat his man, kick it, get fouled, go to the rim, make a layup, put the ball in his hands. And here's what it is too about Richmond. He played one year, but under the rule, he still has four years of eligibility. So this year didn't count at Syracuse. It's like having a 19-year-old kid who played at prep school come in as a freshman, except he didn't play at a prep school. He played in the ACC. That's what you're getting in Kadari Richmond. So I expect Harris and Richmond to be in the starting lineup day one. Pencil them in along with Jared Roden course this can change but that's the way I see it right now Harris Richmond Roden now from there do you start Alexis Yetna or Tyree Samuel with Ike Obiago I mean you'll probably start Ike you don't have to but you could then the question becomes is it Yetna or Samuel that's to be determined and talk about the bench Seton Hall has I know Miles Kale is a starter but I don't know how he starts. I don't know how you get these transfers to come in and say you're not starting. Maybe Miles Kale will start, but I'd be fine with him coming off the bench, first man off the bench, because you know Willard likes to to bring in the bench at about the 15 or 16-minute mark, right? Then you have other veterans, like Trey Jackson. We still don't know what he can be. The jury's still out on him, so it'll be interesting to see how he fits in. But you throw in the newcomers, Ryan Conway, 
a top 140 point guard. Brandon Weston, a top 80 dynamic wing. He was being penciled in as the starter before all this happened. Maybe he still starts, but man, he's got too much talent to have him sit for too long. Tyler Powell, another freshman from California. Where does he fit in? Suddenly, Seton Hall has 10, 11 players that they can count on for some kind of minutes. Now, I don't know if they're going to have 11 players play every game, but I cannot remember. You have to go back to 1989, okay, where Seton Hall had this much depth down the roster. Maybe the 91 team, but I'm going to say that definitely the 89 team. The question is, who's the go-to guy? Who's the alpha dog? Of course, Jared Roden is the leader. He will be the leader and probably should be the go-to guy. But I can tell you this much, he won't have the ball in his hands in the closing minutes unless Harris, Richardson, Conway, or someone else gets the ball to him to create that shot. But it's a great problem to have, isn't it? So we talked about the guards. How about Yetna? Suddenly, a player from South Florida is coming to Seton Hall who Seton Hall fans didn't really know much about until Wednesday. He's six foot eight, 235 pounds. He's a lefty. He's a rebounding machine. I'll call him a stretch four because I've seen his videos. He can step out and hit the three, and he's got a good-looking stroke. He's got a mid-range game. He's good around the rim, and he can hit the occasional three. That's a dangerous dangerous weapon to have but more importantly he loves to rebound as a freshman he averaged nine and a half rebounds a game he did tear his ACL he did have to sit out a year but then he did play last year and still averaged over seven rebounds a game so that was consistent Seton Hall has lacked a dominant rebounder since Angel Delgado left South Orange now I'm not saying Alex Yetna is Angel Delgado Please don't say that, okay? But what I'm saying is for a team that has lacked rebounding since Delgado left, Yetna will help improve that area. So how does he fit into that front line with Obiagu and Samuel? We're talking 7'2", 6'10", 6'8", Yetna, 6'9", Jackson. I'm not even counting Jeff and Gandu because... I don't know if he'll, honestly, I I can't see him ever getting to Seton Hall and trying to crack this lineup. So until I'm told otherwise, I'm not going to count him in. But that's a formidable front line. That's a much improved backcourt. And when you put all that together, Seton Hall has gone from a rebuilding team. Man, I don't know where we're going to finish, but we'll have to rebuild and and let these freshmen play and let them develop and then we're two years away. Well, now suddenly, Seton Hall is there. They are a fringe NCAA tournament team if all the pieces fall into place. They are a preseason top 35-ish, top 40, certainly team, with the potential of being a top 25 team. I'm not going to say they're receiving votes, but 35 to 40, somewhere in there. And if these players develop, and if they accept their roles, and they thrive under Willard, it's going to be exciting. 
The potential is there. The excitement is still there in South Orange for this team to remain in the top four, certainly five teams in the Big East. Villanova, they're the favorites until they're knocked off every year, as far as I'm concerned. And UConn is still going to be very good, even though they lost Book Knight, who will be a lottery pick. They still have R.J. Cole. Isaiah Whaley said he's coming back, the Big East Defensive Player of the Year. And of course, a guy I know and love very much, a player who's going to make a huge impact next year. He did this year as a freshman, Adama Sinogo. So UConn will be right there with Villanova. I also put Xavier in that mix. And Butler. Butler, all of their seniors are coming back. And they were very good the last three weeks of the season. So throw those five teams in there in any order, starting with Villanova. UConn, Seton Hall, Butler, Xavier. I look at those five teams somehow being one through five with Seton Hall more or less in the top four. It has suddenly turned into a very promising summer and offseason as Seton Hall fans greatly anticipate next season. And that is a wrap on episode five of the Tri-State College Basketball Report. My thanks to the great PJ Carlissimo. So fun catching up with Coach and hearing how he's doing out in Seattle. As long as there is college basketball news to talk about in the Tri-State, I will continue doing podcasts in the spring and throughout the summer as we look ahead to college basketball in 2021-22. Remember to follow me on Twitter, at Brian Dino. My name is Brian Dinovellis. So long. Thanks for listening.